0: I gave you all uh, a list of, of resources if you'd like, and I will add another one to it that I found out um, was in print uh, together with some companions and quickly bought all of them. Uh, so uh, this is a book called The Mass in Slow Motion from Monsignor Ronald Knox. He's a phenomenal writer. He's got a, he's got a gift with words. He translated the entire Bible. Um, <laughs> so... He knows what he's doing. His his linguistics are, are top notch, and they're just a, a fantastic, fantastic translation of the scriptures. He's also just a fantastic English English writer, um, native native English writer, and so uh, it's actually it's a book of sermons to schoolgirls. Uh, he was he was chaplain uh, to to a little uh, a little group of schoolgirls and started giving them homilies, uh, giving giving sermons uh, of kind of What's it like to celebrate Mass as a priest? You know, and so it's kind of what what happens in my head, because what happens in, in in your head at Mass is different than what happens uh, in the priest, because we're you know, kind of focusing on different things. So we come with different things on our heart, different experiences, uh, different you know. We're doing different gestures very often, uh, and so Monsignor Knox has a, a great little a great little work here of his own reflections uh, of celebrating mass of what that's like um, as a priest himself Uh, and so and and obviously for written for for a young audience so rather rather accessible it's not kind of high lofty high lofty language uh, that we get lost in but but rather simple and straightforward and and really uh, really quite beautiful so but to dive in uh, to this uh, TLM 201 kind of starting uh, starting in earnest now having Having gone through how to prepare for Mass and what all the vestments mean, uh, ad nauseum, we went through what the vestments mean, uh, and that wasn't even all the vestments. There were plenty more vestments. We just kind of left off, uh, left in the cabinet, so to speak. But today, to, to proceed with the procession, uh, and then reflecting on the asperges and the prayers at the foot of the altar. So... <clears throat> Beginning first with the, the procession. So there's always a procession that begins the Holy Mass. Sometimes it is rather short, such as tonight at Low Mass, where the procession is all of, uh, what, 20 feet uh, from, from the sacristy door uh, to the foot of the altar. You know, it's, it's not triumphal. There's no music. There's no horns. There's no kind of blaring of, of the glory of the Lord. It's just a simple ring the bell and off we go. Uh, on Sundays or, or greater feasts, whenever we would have a sung mass or masses with music uh, that would be when you would have a bit more triumphal procession Uh, and so particularly for us uh, typically on Sundays we're uh, blessed now to have uh, usually a cross and candles that will lead the way uh, as well as the the servers assisting the priest Uh, and so we'll start at the the entryway of the church and make its way uh, full up the aisle and so you know this is a an important piece. It's not, you know, in the liturgy there are are practical things, because if I'm going to offer Mass, I have to get the altar somehow, right? Uh, So you can't just snap and and show up, and uh, they haven't yet uh, advised... an elevation rite in the sense that the priest goes under the, under the church and he just kind of rises up at the foot of the altar as if through a stage, um, you know, that he just kind of is present there out of nowhere, right? So, you know, some of it's practical, uh, but in all practical things, the church always wants to say, but how can I pray with this? Because there's always a, a theological meaning that we can glean from, from each gesture, each action, Even if it be be a merely practical thing uh, in the sacred liturgy, it's something that we can still uh, look at through the lens of Christ, look at through the sacrifice of Calvary, and to be able to to use it as an instrument of praise, an instrument of glorifying the Lord, an instrument of converting our own hearts. And so the movement to the altar, the procession, certainly we can recall some of the Old Testament types. We'll kind of sheet off of our sheet here a little bit, and so most of, most of the, the high points are on the sheet here, uh, but I'll be kind of expounding upon it a little bit, because uh, otherwise I would just read the sheet to you, and we'd be done about four minutes or so, and I'd send you off for the rest of the night. Uh, if you want to do that, feel free to just read the sheet and leave. Uh, you can listen to the rest of the talk later. Um, but it's to know that in the Old Testament types, we can look, of course, to that, that immense pilgrimage, uh, that immense procession of well over a million people out of Egypt to the promised land. So it's the, you know, the, they were called out. Right? So they, they went, they were exiled. They went there first because of the famines. Uh, they went down to Egypt and you know, the Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh knows Joseph and so everybody's good. And then Pharaoh doesn't know Joseph and then there's slavery. And there's some 400 years of them remaining in that before they're brought out in this, this huge mass of people. Um, like it's, it's literally millions of people. brought out of egypt in this triumphal procession being freed from their slavery to be able to to go in freedom to the promised land the land that god had promised to his people and so this is a the the great pilgrimage that takes place there but we also know that for the jewish people there was the the annual annual trip to the temple uh just as in the scriptures tell us that that our lord our lady and saint joseph they were good jews and made their annual pilgrimage to be able to go and and to offer the sacrifices right and so this is how we know that, our, you know, the story of our Lord being left in the temple, uh, and these sorts of things. And so there are these these processions that take place, this the the, the large procession from from the from the slavery of Egypt to freedom in the Promised Land, as well as the the smaller annual pilgrimage uh, to the Holy Temple of God. So we see these, of course, fulfilled in the person of our Lord, who himself. Uh, fulfilled perfectly uh, all of these things from the Old Testament, everything that pointed forward to the Messiah, he fulfilled in some particular way. And so, you know, the scriptures remind us that out of Egypt, I have called my son. Right. And so you know, our Lord was exiled to Egypt and he came back. So it's this the return from Egypt is our Lord kind of embodying what Israel had done previously, going forth and being able to come back. Our Lord's entry on Palm Sunday, which we commemorate, too, with the Palm Sunday procession as uh, a triumphal procession uh, where the, you know, they, they cut down all the branches of the trees and just throw them in the streets and cloaks and cloaks and leaves are everywhere to be able to honor the Lord as he comes in this in this great procession. And the people coming with him, the people from from the countryside who have seen his miracles and heard his words and all this are deeply convicted and come rejoicing with the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the son of David. Right. And so they come in this procession as well. And then it culminates in that final procession, which is the other end of things, where the triumphal crowd turns into the crowd that says, crucify him, crucify him. And he makes his final procession to Calvary, the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross. And so it's these these different processions, these different movements from one place to another can be called to mind as we're reflecting upon the, the procession itself. And so the fact that the bell rings and all of you, Have been trained very well, just like Pavlov's dogs. Except now, rather than drool, you stand up when you hear a bell ring. It's a fantastic thing, right? And so the bell rings, the organ starts, and off we go. And everyone stands uh, as a reminder of of greeting greeting our Lord. So Christ and the priest. So is greeting our blessed Lord, but also the the standing of 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 being ready to move in a sense with uh, that that each of you have come from wherever you've come from to be able to come to the church. And so in that a larger procession has brought you here, uh, and then together you process with the priest to be able to come to the altar of God. And so it's this, this procession that's, that's taking place. And as we're, as we're processing, it's uh, again remindful of all of these other processions that have taken place in the past, and pulling them together and being able to, to incorporate every bit of them simultaneously. Because we as Catholics, we have to think through usually the, the both and this, this and that. Uh, we usually think about that from 10 different angles. So we're looking at 20 different lenses, it seems, half the time. At every single action in liturgy, there's always so many different facets of what is taking place. And so just in us processing down the center aisle or even coming out from the side door of the sacristy, it is a procession that, that is marked by uh, great joy as well as great sorrow. It is pain. As well as glory. It is all of these things, right? It's the triumphal procession of our Lord. It's the, it's the, the going to the cross. It's the people being freed from, from slavery. It's the people going to the promised land. It's the people being able to go out and to, and to be able to enter into the inheritance given to them. So it's all of these things are what we experience uh, every time we enter into the Holy Mass and this procession that begins. And so <clears throat> I love this, this quote from, uh, from Durandus. Um, he says, <laughs> specifically from the priest end of things, he says, uh, The priest comes forth from the holy chamber, clad in sacred vestments, and approaches the altar to show that Christ, the hope of the nations, came forth from the secret dwelling in the heavens, clothed in the holy flesh, drawn from the spotless virgin, and entered into this world. Awesome. That just, just, by, just by being vested... The priest is is simply being there, um, embodying everything that Christ himself has done by, by coming in vested in the particular garment that indeed our Lord has come clothed himself in our humanity and has come clothed with the holy flesh of the Virgin to be able to bring us to our blessed Lord. It is for us also, uh, the mystical body drawing near to heaven, the promised land. It is for us, uh, as we are uh, exiled, uh, exiled from the world. Thanks be to God, <laughs> that we are that we are coming. We are sl- set free from the slavery in the world, and we're coming to make our triumphal procession, coming and coming and coming, to the place of glory. Right? We know that uh, that the liturgy is oriented to the east. Uh, so that, or rather on account of the, the historic understanding that the Christ would come from the east. Uh, the Jewish people always anticipated this, that, that the Lord would come from the, from the east. And when our Lord came to the temple, he came through the east gate, fulfilling that expressed desire. But also it's for us as, as Christians looking to the east to be able to await the second coming of our Lord. And so to the, to the fact that we are marching to the east, or liturgically speaking, as well as for us geographically speaking... The fact that we are orienting ourselves to the east and we are continuing to process there means we are marching our way to heaven. We're 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 ushering in like thy kingdom come now Lord. You know, the, let it let it come. Come, Lord Jesus. Right. And it's the is that the, the call of, of revelation. And so this is what's taking place Is we're continuing with every step forward, ushering in closer and closer to that heavenly land for for which we seek. And also knowing that there's a there's a structure and an order to all the pieces and parts, uh, we don't we don't have the full order. Uh, if you came to the to the solemn high mass. Uh a year, a year something ago, a year and some change ago, uh, we had we had a lot more pieces and parts. Right, we had incense, we had the, we had the the cross and the candles, uh, we had lots of lots of extra servers, we had deacons and priests, and they all come in a certain order during the midst of the of this process, procession uh, to be able to show the the hierarchy of the church in its full in its full array. But it's always led by um, the cross, the candles, and the incense. And the cross and the candles uh, are, of course, uh, you know, the, as the people were being led out of Egypt, the cross and the candles uh, are, the, are the representation that the people being led out of Egypt, they were led through the desert at night by a pillar of fire and during the day a pillar of cloud. Right? And so, so they just followed it. Wherever, wherever it went, that's the direction. If it didn't go, they just set up shop for a while. And so whenever we come to the sacred liturgy, we, we follow the, the candles with the cross, which are the pillar, uh, the pillar of light that, that leads us on uh, as we're continuing the procession, as well as the, the incense, right, the, the, the pillar of cloud that's joined there. And it's also, one can pray with um, the Shekinah glory cloud, uh, which was uh, the, uh, basically like the, the Lord in his glory, like when he descended on the people, like he it was a cloud that covered the people, right? Uh, and so there's kind of like entering into the great mystery of God, uh, similar to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, you know the, the clouds are just there um, at the feet of the apostles and such, is uh, the the incense. You know and this is why it's why you love to have a lot of incense. You don't want to have just a little a couple of little squeaks of smoke coming out of there. You don't want that thing burning. Uh, one of my greatest joys when I was celebrating Mass in in, uh, in a parish one time. is is we had the doors open because they didn't have A.C. Um, We had the doors open. There was so much smoke in the church. I was in the sanctuary. So much smoke in the church. Somebody came in screaming, the church is on fire because there was so much incense. It was coming out the doors and it looked like the church was on fire. I said, we have done it exactly right. You know, if someone thinks the church is on fire because there's so much incense coming out the doors, you've done well. So that's always my goal. So it's to be able to make sure that, <laughs> that we have these great clouds of smoke coming upon us. And of course, everyone will be coughing to usher in that, that cloud, um, you know, with, uh, with our allergies and such. But it's to acknowledge that the, the, just the, the glory cloud of the Lord, that the presence of the Lord is in our midst. And how that incense also rises to the heavens, a reminder to us that we too are called to, uh, to rise up to the heavens to be consumed in the sight of our blessed Lord. And so that's our, our procession, right? And so it's just a, a beautiful, uh, a beautiful occasion that is is full of uh, full of solemnity, that is full of um, again all those those the senses of, of joy and of sorrow, of glory and of pain, all of those things brought together, because simultaneously it's it's Christ who is coming to to show his glory, but but he shows his glory by dying on the cross, right? And so it's it's all of those mysteries called together in one. Continuing, we uh, will then have the, the purification or the asparagus rites uh, or the vidi aquam during the Easter season. And so um, basically before, before every Mass, uh, before the procession or, 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 or prior to the, the prayers at the, at the altar at least, there is the, the use of water. There's a reason we have it at the doors for you good people as you're coming in. We've gotten the sacristy for me as well. Whenever we're coming in for, for daily mass, for low masses from the sides of the sacristy door, there's a, the holy water is there for us. And on Sundays, and only on Sundays, not just on whatever day you want to do it, but only on Sundays, you would have the, the right where you can sprinkle holy water. So if Christmas falls on a on a Tuesday, sorry, no holy water sprinkling because it's only for Sundays. That's the rule, right? And so... It's for us to, to, to see this, this gift of water that's bestowed upon us before we begin the praying of the Holy Mass. And again, Old Testament types are given to us. We know that um, particularly two things, covenants and purifications. So covenants, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, of course, we, in the Old Testament, they love their blood. Uh, and so anything, uh, anything that could be sacrificed would be sacrificed in the Old Testament. Uh, And so it was, you know, large animals, small animals, grain, wine, uh, Isaac, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the Lord called for, for the particular for the particular offering was given. And so in covenants, this was uh, this uh, strikingly important thing because the covenant would be made, uh, as we said, just as with any covenant, uh, communing with with the human and the divine, drawing them together in a family bond. The covenant was, is first agreement of terms, right? So the Lord gives us the law, and he says, you're going to do these things. And we say, yes, sir, we will do these things, right? And so you have an agreement on the terms. You make the vows. So you, you, you commit all these things that we will do, all these things that we will keep, as, as the perpetual found, perpetually found on the lips of the Israelites. And then the last piece to seal the deal is to sacrifice an animal, And so we see this particularly with the major the major covenants that an animal would be sacrificed and typically a large animal like a bull would be sacrificed and you would cut it in half and then put the halves next to each other. And then you would walk between them to be able to to say essentially, if I break the deal, let this happen to me. So it's it's saying I'm serious about this. I would sooner die than break this covenant. And so it's a, a, a very serious thing. Also, kind of parenthetically, that's the reason that, that the couple is supposed to walk down the aisle at Holy Mass for their wedding, is the couple walks down the aisle as a sign of them saying, we're entering into a covenant surrounded by the two halves of their family to be able to say, I'm not breaking this, right? that this is, this is for real till death do us part. Right? And so it's that same, that same understanding, except the simple fact is, that in this contract that we engage in with God, this covenant that we enter into with him, uh, there's only one way out, and it's death. God doesn't die, so only person that's ever going to break it is us. No pressure, right? And so the simple fact is that, that in these covenants, there would be the shedding of blood, and then you would pass through so as to say, if I ever break this covenant, let this happen to me, namely that may death come upon me. And then, uh, in several places, this is then renewed uh, or, or set set aright, or, or renewed again, and not just to be able to have the people walk through, because that would be a large group of people, but at those points, when it was a large crowd of people, they would take the blood of the animal that had been sacrificed and sprinkle it upon the people as a sign of, of kind of letting letting that covenant be upon them. Right, that, Let the blood of this animal that died come out upon you, and that you, know, you would die if you break the covenant that's been made here. And so... The covenant, a very important thing that comes there. And so we can, of course, already you're connecting some of the dots there, if you haven't heard so before. Um, that that this, this sprinkling with blood is a reminder, is a renewal of commitment made to God. Right? And so for us, it's a renewal of our baptismal promises. It's a renewal of the vows that were made for us so that we ourselves made at our baptism that we would renounce sin, renounce Satan, renounce all of his works, and we would believe in God and in his holy church and all the rest of the articles of faith that in the in the rites of baptism. And so it's this that's reminded, you know, it's, it's brought to our mind whenever we have the sprinkling rite is for us to, to remember the covenant that we ourselves have entered into with the good Lord and to, to be renewed in that, to take it seriously uh, for ourselves. Another thing is the purification is that there were times where, uh, where lepers would be sprinkled with blood that was offered in the sacrifices at the temple. And so the temple, the temple blood uh, would, be, would be offered and sprinkled upon lepers for their healing, for their cleansing. Uh, and so there were also, you know, the cleansing of homes required something similar. If someone had a certain, there's all, there's all kind of details. If you ever want to read uh, the rule book for priests in the Old Testament, Leviticus, Uh, Leviticus is your guide that can tell you how much blood to sprinkle and what kind of places for what kind of illnesses and uh, how many times it has to be here and how many times it has to be there and all kind of things that make most people just kind of go to sleep when you read it. Uh, But it's uh, it's all the rules on why and how the sprinkling of blood brings about transformation, brings about purification, sanctification. And so these are things that we that we know and understand from the Old Testament, and of course are then able to apply that to our own selves. Each one of us, again, by virtue of our baptism, we did the same thing as the making of a covenant. Right? There's instruction. There's belief. There's the faith that has to be received first, and we agree. You know that, and uh, the depending on which right you use, but there's always an acceptance. You know of. of Looking for the faith, you're looking. You're looking for the gift of faith for this child or for this adult, um, and so there's an understanding of what that means. The, the, all the articles of faith, the, the fullness of faith that brings eternal life, it's these things that that we understand first as the rules, and we're going to live by these rules. And then we say, yes, I will commit to them, I renounce, you know, do you renounce Satan? I do renounce him in all of his works, I do renounce them and all of his, you know, I do renounce them, do you believe in God? I do, right? And so it's the, the exchange of these vows, this, this commitment to our blessed Lord, and then we are washed, uh, rather than with blood, we are washed with the, the blood of our Lord uh, by the sacramental water, the holy water and the holy font. And so, thus we enter into the covenant. So, uh, ourselves, baptism being a covenantal rite. But it's for us also that uh, that Psalm fifty-one is invoked, uh, at least for the for the aspergus right? Um So, Psalm fifty-one: Aspergus me domine hisopo mundabor, lavabis me et de ababor, Right. And so, it's that you know, you shall sprinkle me, O Lord, with hyssop, um, and with and I shall be clean. You shall wash me, and I shall be made whiter than snow. And so, it's it, it invokes. Uh, and evokes there Psalm Psalm 51 or Psalm 50 and the traditional enumeration. And then for for the Easter season, the vidi aquam, the, the vision from Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel I think forty seven uh, has the indication of, of, of vidi aquam agredientum. Uh and so it's it's you know I saw water coming from the side of the temple, and so it's this this vision of the water that comes down and it's it's a little it's a little but then it comes bigger and bigger and bigger and it's just a, a raging river, uh, and it gives fruit to you know to the to the to the trees twelve times a year, and everything around it is tremendously blessed, right, and so. Those, those two images, uh, one seeking, you know, the, the mercy, uh, seeking the mercy of the Lord, being cleansed from our sins is our, our standard thing. But then particularly during the, the Easter season, to be able to highlight that, that particular vision wherein we're celebrating the fact of all of these things actually happen. Our Lord has been Christ. Our Lord has been crucified. Christ, our past has been slain. Alleluia. Right? And so you rejoice in it all through the Easter season as all these things that have been anticipated, been sought, they come to pass. And so the sprinkling rites call to mind both of these things. And there are, of course, um, the holy water that's used is, is the use of the traditional blessing, is given with um, the blessing of the exorcism of, of the water first, the blessing of the, of the exorcism of the salt, and the commingling of them together. And so whenever you're getting sprinkled with the holy water on Sundays, uh, you're also getting the, the holy salt that is contained in the holy water and the holy salt of course is given as um, as power to to exercise to be able to, to cast out evil it has the power to purify to sanctify as the power there is also uh, to preserve from corruption right and so these these things that are that are graces that are necessary for us right there at the beginning of mass are then offered uh, and they they come down upon us uh, so that as we're beginning, as we're coming in, we're preparing uh, for these holy rites. We haven't even, we haven't really even said anything. Uh, mass hasn't even begun yet. Uh, but it is the fact that that we that we come and we need his help. Right? So we're needing we're needing the Lord's grace. So right off the bat, we come. We're kind of acknowledging our sins uh, and allowing the Lord to, to cleanse us. We know that holy water, uh, when when we use it piously, when we when we. When we're willing to use it um, and understand these things has the power to remit um, and, and to forgive venial sin uh, and so we can come and you know make the sign of the cross with holy water it remits venial sin it's it's done it's gone and so oh, excuse me is to be able to do these things. So if, if one didn't do so already at the door, then this sprinkling rite is, is a, is a rite that, that encourages uh, and acknowledges that to be able to help us to be freed from, from the stuff of the week, uh, the stuff of the day, whatever it may be, and to be able to, to allow us to, to receive whatever Christ desires for us to receive and to make sure that it's not corrupted. Right? So this is uh, all of these things, all of these graces are present here uh, in the rite itself. It's also neat that, that the, the asparagus rite is the blessing of a home. Uh, whenever you look in the ritual, the ritual books, if you go to the blessing of a home outside of Easter season, it is exactly the asparagus rite in full. You pray the, the asparagus, the miserere mei, the glory patria, the, the inclusion at the end. You do the, 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 the versicles back and forth, and you do the, the full concluding prayer, prayer Christum Dominum Nostrum, Amen. And so it's a really fascinating thing that, that what we do every Sunday is the blessing of, of a home. Because it's the family of faith who have gathered here. It's the children of God who have come to the Father's house. Um, and we bless the house. We bless the place. We bless the people who are in it, allowing God's grace to come and descend uh, upon each and upon all. And so uh, it's kind of a, a neat little thing that if, if you've had your home blessed with, with the traditional rite there, then... You know, it's, it's reminding and connecting those things to our home that what happens here is supposed to also happen there, right? And so this is the, this is the church, the home is the domestic church, uh, and so it's to, to be able to draw those connections and allow that to be an encouragement to us. And also, if we're going to be hospitable about things, um, you know that especially when it's a little warm, whenever somebody comes over to the house one of the first things you do is offer them something to drink, right? Do you like a little water, want some coffee, want some tea, right? And these kind of things you'll offer, you'll offer a little refreshment. And so also, whenever you go to, to especially in the, in the time of our Lord, it would be a common thing, hospitality was, you know, to wash their feet, uh, to wash their hands. Um, I've been to a a monastery, Benedictine Monastery, where the first the first time that, that you share a meal with a community, uh, you you have to wait outside the door first until until the the head of the of a community, whoever if the if the whoever's, whoever's in charge that day basically, uh, that that whenever it's time, whenever he's ready, you go and you knock on the door and they let you in, and first things first he washes your hands. So you hold out your hands and he washes them for you as a sign of hospitality, as a sign of welcome uh, and, and greeting and, and kind of bringing you in to find refreshment, to find a place of rest. And so how beautiful Mother Church even, even does these things as she's mindful of us, that, that we come kind of wearied from the world, weary, weary from, the, from just the, the week and whatever, whatever has happened uh, within us and around us, that all of these things, uh, sometimes to, to be able to come and to, to have rest at Holy Mass, is a tremendous blessing, just to be able to to be in the presence of the Lord, and to, to be able to enter into heaven on earth uh, for a bit is is a, a great salve for the soul, uh, and so that the mother church also kind of comes and and gives us that that reminder right at the first that you know, to, it's a time to allow our soul to be refreshed, allow that that renewal, that that docility, uh, that closeness of the Holy Spirit to be within our hearts, and so. After we have made the rounds and Father Brent has spilled copious amounts of water on the center aisle, uh, which you hope you don't slip on as you're coming up in the in the communion procession, then we finally arrive uh, back to the front. Uh, you know, we'll we'll do the uh, do the prayers, uh, asking God's protection and blessing upon us. That His angels indeed and will watch over us. Uh, and then the the changing of the vestments, and so you know change into the vestments, and then we proceed to. Uh, the priests and the servers will come back to the foot of the altar at this point, and um, and thus we begin. We begin some of the, the formal part uh, with the, the more specific prayers that are common to uh, to every single Mass, uh, and it's full. So the prayers to the foot of the altar. Now, there's not a lot of information on exactly where all of these things kind of derive from specifically. I, I didn't find information on... Um, we have exact processions, and here's the order in this century. That would have been really fantastic. We don't have it, uh, probably because some of these things were, were very likely done from the very beginning, uh, or at least as early as the, um, the fourth century when, when the church came above ground and was legalized. I'm sure most of this was, was already kind of in the blood uh, that, that things were happening and just, just sprouted up uh, around that time. And so many things that we see kind of take their their full their full liturgical form uh, during the fourth through the sixth centuries, but um, we can see that there are a handful of things that take place here that did have uh, kind of a general timeline, specifically as regards the prayers for the altar. So, uh, at first, uh, we know that in the beginning, the the majority of of the masses, and particularly in Rome, would be offered in the catacombs, and so they'd be offered on the tombs of the saints. And, um, yeah, so it was there. Uh, but now, kind of entering the church where the tabernacle would be, the blessed sacrament would be, would be reposed, or at least the, the crucifix would be present there. There would become, and you would make some sort of reverence, a fitting reverence, the liturgy um, and the rubrics indicate to us. So fitting reverence, if it is the blessed sacrament that is present there, of course, a genuflection. Uh, otherwise, a profound bow for the celebrant and, and a genuflection regardless for the servers who are present. And so we begin uh, with that. But we can see uh, there was some development of the pieces and parts in this uh, during over the course of several centuries of what prayers really were said. Now, a, a lot of times it's, it's said that, that a, a variety of prayers were set and that were said in the sacristy or they were said on the way to the altar. Uh, and so uh, there's not a lot of clarity on that. Uh, but it was, it was really just kind of place by place. They, each place kind of did different things. Uh, and so that was more or less how the liturgy was until the fifteenth century, sixteenth uh, century, when things were more codified, uh, much more kind of um, uh, regulated with the Council of Trent and the and the codification of the of the ritual books, the the code of uh, the canon of of Holy Mass, and so. But a variety of places, there were, of course, nonetheless postures and, and words that were said to be able to humble oneself before the Lord. That it was at least in, in some places in the 8th century, we have accounts of there being a prostration before the holy altar. As one would come in and, and lie prostrate on the floor. And you'll see this still in some religious communities where, where they will have uh, remnants of this. That they are uh, some of the older communities, they'll have some of these things that are still present there. And so, there, in the eighth century, we see prostration before the holy altar. Uh, in the ninth century, we see uh, something like the confidior starting to, to take place. Uh, words of, of acknowledgment of one's sins, of unworthiness to enter into the you know enter into the sanctuary. Uh, these, these kind of confessions to one another uh, begin to take place in a much more much more clearer and public form. In the 10th century, we have uh, instances, regular instances of the use of, of Psalm 42, the Eutychame. Uh, and then in the 12th century, we have a clear ad- addition of the versicles at the end, the Deus to converses, vivificabis nos, etc. And so we see that it wasn't just kind of a one day, hey, let's put all this together and make a make a thing. It was it was something that, that really just kind of evolved over time, which is how the liturgy is supposed to happen. Uh it's supposed to be an organic organic development, much like trees in the yard. Uh, if I came out one day and the tree had sprouted two hundred foot in the air, I'd be rather confused about things. Right? It's supposed to be a, a slow, a slow, steady growth, um, by you know, kind of guided by the nature of the nature of things itself. And such with the liturgy. And so we have this this flow. That that begins as uh, as an acknowledgement of one's of one's weakness, um, of one's sinfulness before the Lord, and all of these things, uh, all of these prayers uh, point us to particular aspects of that. Saint Augustine said and he was speaking of of the heavenly altar. He says, "No one comes to that heavenly altar except him who comes to this altar with care." Right? And so it's this. This acknowledgement that that whenever we come to the altar of God, it's a serious thing; that it has to be something that that our heart is properly disposed uh, to it. Monsignor Knox, in his uh, in his book here, reflecting on on his experience of coming to the altar, I had to laugh to laugh to myself uh, because in so many ways it, it made perfect sense to me um, as a priest. It was it was exactly much better words and much prettier language than I would use to say the same concept. He said that the priest feels rather like a fool, looking good when he knows he is but a sinner. He is a man in company far too rich for himself. And so it's, a, it's this kind of awkward and awkward moment where the priest knows, I have no reason to be standing here. And yet, here we are, Lord. And so it's this, this sense in which um, Monsignor, he also speaks of, of, of our Lord coming to us uh, with, with the, the help that comes from the Lord as, as we mentioned the prayers. As he says essentially the priest is is you know for himself as a man himself although he is he is certainly he is in persona christi capitis is, is he is living and acting in the person of christ the head but as a priest as as a man himself he also knows that that moment is is kind of like the priest together with the people is is like you know when you you know somebody who's who's got connections with somebody who's kind of way up the up the up the totem pole and again company that's more, you know, far, far above oneself is you got to know somebody that can get you up there. Right? And so you got to know somebody who's in to be able to get in. And our, it's our blessed Lord who kind of takes us by the hand and says, hey, don't worry. Hey, this is my friend. He's going to hang out with you now. Right. And so it's the, the sense of, of our Lord. Our Lord is the one who comes to help us in our insufficiency, in our inadequacy, in our, in our, in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, and he comes and he says, I'm with you, I, you know, I'm, I'm here to, to, to help you, let's go. And so it's, it's our, our Lord who comes indeed to our help. But kind of jumping ahead a little bit there, though. So we come to the, the holy altar and make the sign of the cross. Of course, the sign of the cross, the most, uh, the most visible, you know, visible Catholic sign there. And it's the starting point of, of our preparations in earnest at the at the altar. Because at first we've we've done the washing uh, with the holy water, but the, the what prayers, the, the prayers at the foot of the altar are really the the extra part of that. They're the they're the verbalization of what that symbolizes. And so we come, we make the sign of the cross, professing, uh, professing the, the the unity of the Trinity. And then we begin, intro al And so it's a reminder to us that that the first words after the sign of the cross speak to us of the altar of God and so it's an encouragement to us and an exhortation to us to remember that, that we are here to come to the altar. We are here to offer a sacrifice. This is not just a community meal. it's not any of those know those kind of foolish things that, that, that kind of kind of dumb down or, or horizontalize uh, so much of our of our worship in the world it's for us to recognize that that we've come to pay homage to the one true God. We have no gift in this world that can truly satisfy what we owe Him. And so we come to offer the one gift that He Himself already gave us, as the Roman canon tells us, namely Christ Himself. So we're coming to offer the one sacrifice of Christ. We're coming to offer our Lord as He was offered on Calvary, to participate in that one particular moment. So we're, we're making present that great mystery that happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, we're not crucifying Jesus again. We're not killing him again. We're not doing any of the things that Protestants uh, would would like to think that, that we are doing. Uh, and so, but it is to, to acknowledge the fact that, that we come here to offer sacrifice. It is an, an authentic, unbloody sacrifice. It was bloody 2,000 years ago, but for us, it is unbloody in the sense that our Lord is doing it mystically now and not just physically, although miracles, uh, of course, give us a little, a little curveball here every now and then, wrestling with that same mystery. This for us to acknowledge that as we come here, we come to offer a sacrifice and we need to be pure. We need to be ready to offer that sacrifice, and it's that sacrifice also that does make us pure. So it's this kind of great, kind of cyclical motion that we find ourselves in. But as we do, we begin. Uh, with the, the psalm, Psalm 42, um, and this, uh, the eudicame, eudicame deus. And so we come here, and, and essentially it's, you know, judge me, O God. What a fearsome thing to start with. <laughs> judge me, O God. right? Ugh. But to have a clean heart and to say it is good. You know, we ought not fear the just judge if indeed our hearts are right. And so this is what, you know, at least the liturgy is, is encouraging us to, to put these words up on our lips, if, if it in fact is not true yet, to be able to aim for that to be true. You know? Judge me, O God, and distinguish my cause from the nation that is not holy. Right? In other words, you know, count me as one of your holy ones. See that, see that I am among your holy ones. See that I, am, that I am a just man, not an unjust one. And so it's, it's, it's aiming for, it's longing for, and, and, and seeking to be uh, a person of justice, a person of holiness of life. And so this is an initial aim for us. And so it was also helpful. Um, one commentator pointed out that that this psalm in beginning there is also a reminder to us that, that the, the three stages of the interior life are also contained in the Utica uh, So at the beginning of every Mass, we are reminded of the, the stages of the interior life uh, as we go through and so, to make to I guess to make a little point of that, right? So, utique me et de schernica causa de gentem non sanctam hominem iniquo et de to Judge me, O God, and distinguish my cause from the nation that is not holy. Deliver me from the unjust and deceitful man. And so it's this, this psalm, which is, is first, it's, a, it's understood to be a psalm of David when he's in exile. He's, he's been kind of exiled from Jerusalem. He's longing to get back to the temple, longing to get back to that place, right, to, 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 be, to, to go once more to the altar of God. And so it's this, this fact of being out in the world first, of being, of being far away from God. And so it's the first, the first stage of the interior life is that of the purgative way, right? You're being purged from your sins, and so it's the this is where you know moral sin is being cast out, and venial sins are being set aside, and all of these things. So this is the first, the first stage of the interior life is is sin is starting to get to get pushed away, um, in earnest. And then we continue on, uh, and then you know, tu teus, right? For thou, O God, are my strength. Why have you cast me off? Why do I go sorrowful while whilst the enemy afflicted me. And in continuing, send forth thy light and thy truth. They have led me and brought me unto thy holy hill and into thy tabernacles. And here... It leads to the second stage of the interior life, which is the illuminative way that one is has enlightened by Christ. And that and begins to, to set aside even venial sin to seek after, uh, even to, to, to have a, a profound distaste, even for imperfections. And so we're, you know, thinking, You know, send forth thy light to illuminate us, illuminate us, Lord. And in the end, continuing, And I will go unto the altar of God, to God who giveth joy to my youth. And so this is the unitive way, and so the, the third stage of, of the interior life is, is union with God. It's a profound, deep, and lasting union with God. And so it's this, this movement that happens in the psalm itself as we are coming from the world, seeking after our Lord, enlighten me, Lord, so that I can be in union with you. It's the, the encapture of the entire spiritual life in like three lines, which is amazing. And it happens every single Mass. and. How often do we even think about it, you know? And so it's there as a as a reminder to us and encouragement to us that that if, if ever we think we are are sufficiently uh, along far along in the spiritual life, there's more to go. Right? Uh, Saint Teresa of Avila. At one point she wrote and she, she, had, she had discerned uh, four, four levels of the spiritual life, four, four levels of, of kind of growth. Um, and then some years later she, she wrote another, another book. She was like, just kidding, I've discerned nine now. There were five more that I didn't even know were possible. And yet, I've been through them. Right? And so you know, it's, it's, it's a, a remarkable thing that there is always more. Uh, that is awaiting for us in the spiritual life, and the psalm uh, kind of seeks to pull that out of us, uh, to be able to continue to pull us closer and closer to that great union with our blessed Lord. So, continuing on, the, the psalm continues and, and goes to its conclusion. We arrive at the at the end, uh, and then we do the sign of the cross. Auditorium nostrum in nomine Domini. No, yes. Going on. Sorry. So, at auditorium nostrum. I think I mixed them up somewhere. No, it's just the order. Anyways, uh, so the Auditorium Milstrom, right? Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so it's essentially for us to, to be able to come and to say that, that Lord, I need your help. I'm, I'm longing to be united with you, but, but I need you. I need your strength. Um, and the Lord is. The Lord is our help. He does come to, to bring us his mercy. And then we make the confidio, of course, um, going back and forth with each other, uh, which is a common thing. Uh, so reflecting on this, and, and Monsignor Knox said a similar thing. He said, if you're if you're playing a match a match of tennis with someone, and you and you and you hit a, a ball terribly bad, uh, and you know, then they have to go chase after it. You you apologize to them. Sorry, right? And how many, times, how many times do you see that still, right? I remember, you know, when, you know, playing basketball with my friends, and we're on the same team, and I try to try to pass the ball to them, and it, pa- it bounces right past them. And, my bad, sorry, right? <laughs> you know, you'll see, or you'll see, you see know, players, you know, even in, in, uh, in, in sports things as they're going, you know, they may not be yelling at each other, but they're hitting their chest, right? They're doing mea culpa's right there on the field saying, that was on me. That was my fault. Sorry, it affected you, right? Um, and so... It's this acknowledgement that we, as, a, as an entire community, make. The priest being first because you know, the father has to set the stage, he has to, he has to set the standard, uh, and to be able to admit fault first, uh, and then to lead, to lead all the rest. And but it is uh, it is for us all to acknowledge uh, our shortcomings, to acknowledge our sins. We don't do it in in sacramental form because that would be long and and uh, awkward and really uh, <laughs> really weird for us to begin mass such. But, um, but nonetheless, it is in a, in a general sense uh, to be able to acknowledge our sins, to acknowledge that, that we are members of a body and, and our shortcomings have affected the, pre, the people around us, uh, whether we know it or not and whether they know it or not, to acknowledge these things and then to turn again to turn to the Lord who can who can be with us and, and lift us up from these things. And it's instructive that that whenever we do the confidio, we're, we're bowing down. Right. And so it's a bowing posture. Um, but at the end of the Confidior, there's the tour, um, the, you know, may Almighty God have mercy on you. And then you, you rise back up. And so it's a mini resurrection that happens right at the beginning. Uh, and so we come, we admit our need, we admit our weakness before the Lord. We admit that, that our help is only from him. But then admitting our sin, once we admit it, he comes to our help. And God has mercy on us. God shows us his mercy. He gives us his grace. He remits our sins. And thus, we are able to stand erect. We are able to, to, to be in the resurrection, uh, to be freed from our sins and no longer bound by all these things. And thus, able to enter into um, the holy altar of God. And so, after this, there is, the, you know, uh, again, these few verses. Deus to converses. "You will turn, O God, and bring us to life. And you shall rejoice. Thy your, your people shall rejoice in thee. Show us, O Lord, your mercy. Grant us your salvation. O Lord, hear my prayer. Let my cry come unto thee. Lord be with you and with your spirit. And at this point, the priest uh, says, Aremus, right? Let us pray." Uh, and as Monsignor Knox says, he says, "Indeed, let us pray." Right. And so it's this this invitation for us um, after all of those after all of those things. Uh, the Auremos, the let us pray, because to all of that point, the mass still hasn't begun. The mass begins. Truly, but the introit—that's where the mass itself begins, um, and so all the rest is preparation. And so, uh, again, it's instructive to us that all of that is just the preparation. You know, that's a good amount of time. That a lot of things have happened. All kinds of things have uh, you know we've we've processed in. We've we've thrown holy water around, changed clothes, offered a bunch of prayers, done all kinds of things, and then. After what, 10 minutes or so, 10 minutes of preparing ourselves, at least once, once we've kind of gotten in the building, then, then we can finally start. Um, and thus begins the great mystery of the Holy Mass. Uh, and so, we'll continue from there next time. Any questions? There's not a lot that's really, not a lot more to say. I mean, there's tons more to say, but not more to say on those points. So this yes, man. Okay. Is that Well it's it's more you know, it's more talking about just the spiritual life itself, not not the mass itself, but the the you know, there are different stages of the of the spiritual life where you can you can discern by you know, how frequent mortal sin is taking place, how frequent venial sin is taking place, how frequent imperfections are taking place. And basically, there comes to a point that you have almost nothing. <laughs> Your confession is fluffy cotton candy because there's not much that's actually sin at that point. Uh, and so, um, yeah, so it would be more, more just the spiritual life, generally speaking, and not specifically the Holy Mass, but yeah. The Holy Mass the beginning is when we are coming in, and that is the procession, the procession, and that's our order and meaningful, and everything has meaning. Everything is said, everything that is done. Every bit of it. Mm-hmm. Usually in the missals, um, it says "Order of the Mass" right before the the mm-hmm. So why why is, that? is it Just because this is it wouldn't be right to start the mass without doing this kind of thing? Or? Yeah, I mean it's it's that that's the normal. I mean it, it the preparation the preparatory prayers have become essentially part of the Mass, but they're really just preparations. They're things to to get you. To get you ready for the actual sacrifice because until that point you haven't you haven't ascended the altar right and so it's it's just it's just preparatory things the sacrifice hasn't begun yet uh, and so that's why we'd say kind of that the mass itself would really begin with um, with an intro tri- tri- typically speaking yeah Well, no. I mean, for the mass, not for the whole lifetime. Yeah. Yes and no. You make the holy water because you're you're here and and you're starting right. You're coming here, but like the mass specifically, so very precise because we're Roman Catholic and we like to be very precise. um, Like the mass itself, the sacrifice would begin with the particular prayer of the entrance and the introit, that would be prayed. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you all.